Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm great. I don't, I want to say something about how I can't believe it's October, but I feel like oh, everyone gosh, is no, already no. expecting mm-hmm. me to say something like that. So mm-hmm. I'm really trying not to. So let's talk about something else. <laughs> okay. Can I tell, say something? Sure. Can I share something? Um, my daughter's team, they just won the state championship in their division and they get like rings. It's like so official. I'm so excited That's for them. That's so awesome. Yeah. I know you texted me and told me that, I guess, over the weekend. I feel like I just lose track of days. What day is it even today? I know. It, it was just <laughs> this past weekend. So it wasn't that long ago, but it also feels like seven years ago. Yeah. That's so exciting. And I know, um, and you have been like the, like, best volleyball mom like cheering her on for her whole volleyball journey so like it's so exciting I love it so much it was and all the parents are so nice so like it was exciting to see each of the girls like how great they all did and like they played I don't know it's just like one of those things that like when you're developing like core memories like that will be one for her and I just loved it I was loved that I got to be there yeah so that's enough sappiness I know I feel like we just get we only really get sappy about our kids like that's (laughs) that's like the one thing that both of us are like oh we just love them so much (laughs) 
I started tearing up at the game. I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, I need to talk to someone. This is a lot. But it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So best weekend awesome. ever. Yeah. Congratulations to her and her team. That's Absolutely. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So another exciting thing, Melissa, is that um, we are going to be delivering our second Bexley box to a local police station soon. And we're super, super excited about that. I know we mentioned that we had brought a Bexley box with us to CrimeCon and we were trying to like find somebody to give it to. We were trying to, you know, get an in with someone. And um, thankfully, we were able. There's a lot of. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people you got to go through. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually just not as easy as we would like for it to be. But we did find a home for the Bexley box that we um, showed and displayed at CrimeCon. So we're really excited to um, go and deliver that next week. Yeah. And we should have more because I, the sheriff we're working with gave us like a bunch of contacts to like actual people instead of us just writing emails to be like, hi, yeah, <laughs> my name's Melissa. Would you like? And then, you know, they're like, I don't know who this is. This is junk. So it'll be really cool. I'm excited to see more and more pop up. They're going to be, I guess, almost a 40 this week. So there's been so many uh, Bexley box deliveries happening recently. Um, Mm -hmm. We've been in the group text for the foundation, the Brightigan foundation, and have been seeing all the pictures of all the Bexley boxes that have been delivered in the last um, several weeks. And it's just super, super exciting. So that is definitely going full force. We're very, very happy about that. So if you are interested in finding out more, you can check out the Brightigan Foundation. There's all the information that you need about Bexley boxes there. So we will get into the story this week. This is a really interesting one, particularly for someone who does enjoy a good conspiracy theory. That would be me. So working at a landfill wouldn't exactly be my dream job. And that's for several reasons. But most of all, it's due to the stinky smells and the health hazards. But I can imagine that there is somewhat of an interesting element to getting this firsthand look at what people are throwing away as trash. Landfills are full of a very diverse range of waste generated by society. You can find everything from household items like appliances and furniture, electronics and clothing, to organic waste like food scraps and yard trimmings. There's also plastic, chemicals, batteries, and other potentially toxic substances found in landfills. There's not really much that would be considered shocking to find in a landfill, but one thing that does come to mind that would be pretty shocking is... A human body. Melissa, I don't know if you ever read or saw the book, The Lovely Bones. I think I've definitely mentioned it on the podcast before. It was one of my favorite books I ever read as a teenager. Didn't didn't read it, but the movie was like, it still haunts me really. Yes. Yeah. It really stands out. Um, I read it in, I think, like ninth grade, but the topics in the book really are dark and intense. And like now looking back as an adult, I was like, huh, that was kind of heavy reading for um, a 14 or a 15 year old, especially considering like the content of the story. So if you haven't read the book, a little spoiler alert, it's an older book, so I feel like that's okay. It's about a girl who was murdered by her neighbor and he put her body inside of a safe and dumped it into a sinkhole where people paid the property owner to dump things like appliances and furniture. So the book is told as a first-person narrative from the perspective of the victim and she's in heaven watching her family struggle with her loss and their inability to locate her body. So ever since I read that book, I realized that landfills and sinkholes probably are actually used for nefarious purposes more than I had previously considered. I've definitely seen this concept in movies and TV shows where they find bodies at landfills, but I had never heard of it actually happening in real life until the story we're talking about this week. 
On New Year's Eve in 2010, just before 10 a.m., an employee at the Cherry Island Landfill in Wilmington, Delaware, noticed a body falling from a dump truck into a trash pile. The employee promptly contacted the police, who identified the deceased man as 66-year-old Jack Wheeler. It was obvious that Jack had been murdered, but it appeared that his body had not been in the dumpster for very long. Police waited until January 2nd, 2011, before they notified Jack's family of his death. They launched an investigation to determine where Jack's body had initially been disposed of. They traced the route of the dump truck and revealed that Jack had been left in a commercial trash bin on the east side of Newark at one of 10 possible locations. The truck that he was found on had started collecting trash from these bins at 4.20 a.m. that morning. And based on Jack's location inside the truck, it was theorized that he had been in one of the bins that was collected earlier in the route. As investigators began digging more into who Jack was and why he was killed, they learned that Jack himself was far from being an ordinary man. He was a man with quite a resume and an impressive list of accomplishments. John Parsons Wheeler III, known as Jack Wheeler, was born on December 14, 1944, to parents John P. Wheeler II and Janet. He was the oldest of his three siblings. His father, who was referred to as Big Jack, was a decorated Army colonel. Jack was born in Laredo, Texas, where his dad was stationed at the time, but his father wasn't there because he was commanding a tank battalion in the Battle of the Bulge, which is one of the most significant and deadliest battles in U.S. history that happened during World War II. As a child, Jack grew up on various army posts, including one in Germany, during the American occupation following World War II. Jack attended Hampton High School in Virginia when his dad was stationed at Fort Monroe. At Hampton High School, Jack actively participated in cross-country, and he held leadership roles in the Russian and Spanish clubs. He also served as the vice president of the Quill and Scroll and was a member of the National Honor Society and the Math Honor Society. If you ended it right there, that guy's already accomplished more than I ever will in my life. For sure, yeah. Like, right there. He's not even out of high school (laughs) beating me big time. And he has so much more that he does. So he graduates in 1962 and was also voted most likely to succeed during his senior year. Although he had received a National Merit Scholarship offer to Yale, he actually opted to follow in his father's footsteps by enrolling at West Point. In 1966, Jack graduated from West Point as a distinguished graduate. From 1966 to 1967, he served as a fire control platoon leader at the nuclear Nike Hercules site in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey. Jack reportedly felt ambivalent towards America's role in Vietnam, so he delayed his military service by pursuing a graduate degree at Harvard Business School. In 1969, he earned an MBA with distinction from Harvard, and he immediately secured an administrative role at Long Bin, the U.S. Army's headquarters, approximately 20 miles northeast of Saigon. In this capacity, he computerized various Army operations, including troop movements and food requisitions until 1970. According to the Washington Post, Jack's choice not to participate in the war left him with these lingering feelings of guilt, and this had a lot to do with the fact that many of his West Point classmates who were graduating in the same year as him had actually gone to serve in Vietnam, and there was a very high casualty rate among his classmates. His friends said that Jack was fixated on the loss of someone in particular named Thomas J. Hayes IV, and this was a classmate who had died while heroically rescuing two American soldiers from enemy gunfire. 
Jack spoke often about wanting to honor the sacrifice that Thomas had made. In 1971, Jack retired from the military. This actually coincided with a time where there was significant downsizing in the military following the end of the war. Those who knew Jack said that his experience with the war really impacted him greatly. One friend noted that Jack had this enduring commitment to healing the wounds that were suffered by Vietnam veterans and his generation in general. From 1971 to 1972, Jack worked as a senior planner for Amtrak. In 1975, he earned a Juris Doctor degree from Yale Law School and went on to serve as a clerk for a judge at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. In 1977, Jack and his first wife, Elisa, welcomed twins. They were a boy and a girl. Starting in 1978, Jack began working as special counsel for the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, and he remained in this role until 1986. Like you said, like, this is so many, and the, everything seems important, right? So it's not Very it's important. not like he's just having all of these like random jobs or whatever. These are all important positions that most of us would never even have one of these positions. Generations of my family will never accomplish <laughs> this much. Yeah. So furthermore, in 1979, Jack worked with Jan C. Scruggs, who was a Vietnam veteran who founded the Vietnam Memorial Fund. And this initiative aimed to construct a memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And so Jack enlisted support from his Harvard Business Associates to secure congressional approval for this memorial's construction. I mean, amazing. Literally the... Vietnam, the Vietnam Memorial. Veterans yeah. Memorial. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing. So during 1980 and 1981, Jack played a role in the creation of the Vietnam Veterans Leadership Program under President Ronald Reagan's administration. From 1983 to 1988, he was the chairman and CEO at Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Everybody's heard of MAD, of course. That's a very, yeah. um, very well-known organization. In 1984, Jack wrote a book called Touched with Fire, The Future of the Vietnam Generation, and later he contributed to another book called The Wounded Generation, America After Vietnam. Between 1988 and 89, Jack was part of President George Bush's transition team, and he helped found the Earth Conservation Corps during that time. In 1989, Another author named Rick Atkinson published the book The Long Gray Line, and this book actually received a Pulitzer Prize and featured profiles of Jack as well as other members of his West Point graduating class, uh, the class of 1966. According to the Daily Press, that year was really interesting because the attendees' families had been involved in World War II while the attendees of that class were actually looking at going to war in Vietnam. So this was, wow. they were saying, you know, a crossroads in history. So they wrote a book about many people who were um, kind of involved in this. And Jack was profiled in this book, which really cool. Again, Again I will never be profiled in any piece of literature that's If I like am, it's not going to be positive, I'll right. tell you that much. <laughs> exactly. And we have so much more to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. When I was a kid, I remember really wanting a second dog. And my mom said, 
When you get older, you can get a second dog, but dogs are really expensive. My 10-year-old brain thought she was being dramatic, but as an adult, I can see she was totally right. Having a pet can be expensive, but one thing that makes it more expensive is having a pet without pet insurance. That's why we love Embrace Pet Insurance. A few weeks ago, I woke up to find that Remy was really sick. He was lethargic and he couldn't keep food or water down. So I brought him to the vet where they ran an x-ray as well as lab work to see what was going on. I held my breath when they told me the cost. Luckily, though, I had pet insurance and walked out of there paying a fraction of the total bill. Inflation has hit everyone hard, but it seems that vet care has especially skyrocketed. In fact, it's increased 33% just from 2022 to 2023. At this point, I can't afford not to have pet insurance. And with Embrace Pet Insurance, you can bring your furry friend to any vet or emergency clinic. Plus, if you have multiple pets like I do, you're eligible for a 10% multi-pet discount. Don't wait for the unexpected to happen. Join the massive community of pet owners who trust Embrace Pet Insurance to protect their pet. Head to EmbracePetInsurance.com slash moms and sign up for pet insurance today. Make sure you go to EmbracePetInsurance.com slash moms or else they won't know we sent you. That's EmbracePetInsurance.com slash moms. Stop. This message could save you from investing your precious time into a true crime story that goes nowhere. Avoid that disappointment. You need True Crime Feed Podcast, unlimited premium true crime curated for you. Find out about an eccentric car maker who lost control. And hear about a Halloween party where everyone is a murder suspect, as well as bizarre black markets and political murder plots. And take a ride along with PI moms in minivans that fails in spectacular fashion. You know those feels you get when you're tuning into a primo true crime podcast? The thrill chills. You can't get enough. But not every podcast hits the same. You can spend hours sifting through mediocre shows that don't deliver the goods. Well, not anymore. True Crime Feed Podcast has your back. True Crime Feed sifts through the archives from the past decade to select the best cases and gives you a quick overview sprinkled with a teensy bit of humor, plus a weekly top three power ranking for shows currently trending and lets you know what shows to send down your podcast queue trap door. You know you want those thrill chills, so come and get them. Subscribe to True Crime Feed. That's True Crime F-E-E-D wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing the murder of Jack Wheeler and also going into sort of his history and all the things he'd accomplished and the things he was working on at the time of his murder. So in 1993, Jack met a woman named Catherine, a divorced mother of two daughters. The couple eventually married in 1997. Catherine later founded a handwoven Cambodian silk company. Catherine later said that Jack's frequent work-related travels made him really ill-suited for domestic life. She said they spent more time apart than together, which really made it hard to have a family structure. From 1997 to 2001, Jack served as the president and CEO of the Deafness Research Foundation. Between 2005 and 2008, Jack held the position of special assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force during President George W. Bush's administration. His responsibilities included involvement in sensitive projects such as cyber warfare and the establishment of the Air Force Cyber Command. Jack was widely recognized as an expert in biological and chemical weapons. In 2008, Jack retired from federal service and received the Air Force Exceptional Civilian Service Award with bronze device in recognition of his contributions. Throughout his career, Jack had a hand in various noteworthy endeavors. 
He served as the founding CEO of the Vietnam Children's Fund, which contributed to the construction of 51 schools in Vietnam. He played a crucial role in guiding Macy's through a bankruptcy process by serving as special counsel to the chairman. He was also instrumental in the creation of a book designed to provide support and solace to grieving spouses and children of service members buried at Arlington Cemetery. Jack also initiated an effort to ensure that female service members had appropriately sized boots, which addressed this issue of them before this having to wear small men's sizes prior to his advocacy. He conceptualized and brought to fruition the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection, which is a permanent exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum of American History. It features objects left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall, which is very moving to see that wall and then see what the things that are being left and the notes and all that sort of thing. So it's pretty amazing they have that. Jack was also known for his unwavering passion and commitment in all his pursuits. Retired Army General and former Democratic presidential candidate Wesley Clark spoke really highly of Jack, giving praise to his ability to bring people together, his good nature, strong convictions, and the high regard in which he was held by others. So Jack's life really seems like something you would only see in a Hollywood action thriller. He was just one of those people who seemed very important and someone who was destined to leave their mark in history. Investigators had a lot to figure out when it came to understanding how his body ended up in the back of a dump truck to be disposed of at a landfill. In the process of tracing his last steps, police figured out that Jack had recently attempted to get a restraining order against a couple with the last name Marini, but it was unclear exactly what that was all about. They did see that the judge in that case had denied the protective order, though. The backstory that would later come out was that in 2009, Jack and Catherine initiated legal proceedings to stop the construction of a new house that was planned to be two and a half stories high, and it was going to be built across the street from their own home. The builders of this new house were this couple, the Marinis. So Jack and Catherine were objecting based on this claim that the new home they wanted to build would exceed the height of the neighboring houses, and that would potentially obstruct their view of Battery Park and the Delaware River. So obviously, the people who already have homes there, you can see like how this kind of thing yeah. happens. They're like, yeah, we don't want you to build a two-story house right in front of the river when that's like the view that we like. And that's why we chose our house, you know, exactly. or whatever. So it was kind of just like one of those things. Furthermore, the property that the new house was supposed to be built on also had some historical significance. Um, it had served as a defensive battery site during the colonial and revolutionary eras. So, you know, Jack and Catherine also had a little bit of kind of vested interest in protecting yeah. that specific property. At this time, Jack and Catherine were actually splitting their time between Manhattan, New York, and Newcastle, Delaware, which is about seven miles away from Wilmington. They were established residents and registered to vote there in Delaware. When living in Delaware, they stayed in their home, which was a prominent three-story house in this historic district. Although another neighbor described Jack as being really humble and just wonderful, he said he was actually deeply committed to this legal battle concerning the Marini house. He was all in. He really did not want them to be able to put up this house there. He actually mobilized 82 fellow residents in the area to sign a petition opposing the construction, and they even established like a neighborhood community group that they called Save Battery Park in an effort to prevent this house from going up. 
But despite all of this, the historic commission of Newcastle granted permission to the Marinis to proceed with the construction of their home in December of 2009, which, Melissa, I don't know about you, but like, I feel like if 82 people signed a petition that they didn't want me to build my house there, like, I wouldn't want to build my house there. Like, the neighbors are never going to like you. Like, that's like, you're already starting off on a terrible foot. Like, I would feel so awkward being like, okay, 82 of my, like, closest neighbors like don't want me here but people that sleep literally feet from me at night (laughs) don't want me to live here but let's get this house built yeah Yeah, I I I know what you're saying yeah so the construction of the Marini home commenced that was their right to do that but Jack and Catherine's legal dispute with the Marinis persisted in Delaware court and this lawsuit gained significant public attention and it was just very contentious as I said you can kind of imagine how it would be this like talk of the town, right? That they're like, you know, they're being sued and they're kind of battling it out. But like at the end of the day, they're going to be living across the street from each other. So it's a little like... If you need a cup of sugar, who are you going to? Not them. (laughs) So by December 2010, Jack and Catherine were still dividing their time between residences in New York and Delaware. At this time, Jack took on a consulting role with a nonprofit defense company based in Washington, D.C., which specialized in the development of technologies for the Department of Defense. Jack's daily commute to work involved taking the Amtrak train. Additionally, Jack was actively involved in efforts to reinstate ROTC programs at prestigious Ivy League schools such as Harvard and Stanford. During the Christmas holiday season, Jack and Catherine spent their time at their property in Manhattan. On December 28th, Jack abruptly left his home in New York and traveled to Washington, D.C., He told his wife, Catherine, that he had to spend a few days working and said he'd be staying in downtown Washington. But Catherine was not happy about this. She would rather Jack stay home for the holidays, but Jack insisted that he had to go. Everything seemed completely fine with Jack otherwise. The couple continued their argument through text and emails throughout the day, but then Jack went quiet after the morning of December 29th. Catherine's attempts to reach Jack through calls and text messages were unsuccessful, and his phone consistently went to voicemail for the next couple of days, which she said later only made her more and more mad. And I get that feeling. I feel the same way. Yeah. So on New Year's Eve, Catherine and Jack had plans to attend a cousin's wedding, but since she was unable to contact Jack, Catherine attended the wedding alone. She had no idea that her husband had been discovered deceased earlier that same day. On New Year's Eve at approximately 10 a.m., Jack Wheeler's body was discovered in the Cherry Island landfill in Wilmington, Delaware. He had been murdered and had not been in the dumpster for very long. Although the police identified him quickly because his ID was still on his body, they didn't notify Jack's family of his death until January 2nd. The investigation revealed that Jack's body had been placed in a commercial trash bin on the east side of Newark during the early morning trash pickup route, which started at 4.20 that morning. The police began their investigation by trying to trace Jack's recent activities. They found out that two weeks earlier on December 13th, a Delaware judge had denied Jack's request for a temporary restraining order against the Marinis. As we mentioned earlier, on the morning of December 28th, Jack abruptly left New York for Washington, D.C. Police learned that on that afternoon, Jack emailed his attorney and the contents of the email were normal and showed no signs of distress. At 5 p.m., Jack posted on a message board for West Point's class of 66, again displaying completely normal behavior. 
At 7.30 p.m., Jack returned to Wilmington by the Amtrak, where he summoned taxis in Wilmington about one hour apart. So he got one taxi and then an hour later called another taxi. Right. But it's unclear where he actually settled in and went to bed that night. At 11.30 p.m., a neighbor of Jack and Catherine witnessed someone matching Jack's description that was wearing a hat, dark pants, and a gray sweatshirt, throwing a burning object into the Marini home. The neighbor said that the person then calmly left and just walked across the park. So the neighbor called 911 to report this. When firefighters arrived, they discovered that several smoke bombs, the kind that are typically used for rodent control, had been thrown inside the Marini residence, and this caused scorching damage to the unfinished floors. Notably, Jack's phone was found inside of the Marini home. Throughout that day, Jack attempted to make up with Catherine, who, as we said, was angry that he left for work, even though it was the holidays, and he also sent emails to his daughter and stepdaughters. On the morning of December 29th, Jack sent his family an email in which he seemed totally normal and fine. He got into a cab in Wilmington at 8.45 a.m. and asked to be taken to Hotel DuPont, but it's unclear what reason he had for going there. During his time in the cab, he spoke with the driver casually. At 9.30 a.m., Jack emailed his company and said his home had been broken into and his cell phone, badge, key fob, and briefcase had all been stolen. Around the same time, he also emailed his therapist and said he felt, quote, dazed and boxed into a corner, end quote, talking about this fight he had had with his wife, Catherine. Jack sent other emails that day as well, but it's unclear where he sent these from. At 6 p.m., still December 29th, Jack goes to a drugstore in Newcastle located a few blocks from his home. He actually approached a pharmacist and requested a ride to Wilmington. The pharmacist noticed that Jack appeared upset but was still dressed in professional clothing. He was wearing a black suit and a white shirt. The pharmacist offered to call him a cab, but Jack declined. At 6.42 p.m., surveillance footage captured Jack in the office corridor of a downtown Wilmington parking garage, situated near the Newcastle County Courthouse. In this video, Jack appeared disoriented and he was wandering aimlessly. In the parking garage, Jack stopped to talk with the office attendant. He was dressed in a black suit without a tie, but at this point, he's only wearing one shoe. His collar was also unbuttoned and his left jacket sleeve had dirt stains on it. Jack had that other shoe, though, and he had it in his hand, and it was damaged. He didn't have an overcoat on at this point. He informed the attendant that he wanted to warm up before paying for the parking, but the attendant soon realized that Jack didn't even have a car parked there. Jack claimed that someone had robbed him of his briefcase, but requested that the police not be contacted. He reiterated multiple times that he was not intoxicated, which the attendant actually believed because Jack didn't smell of alcohol and he wasn't slurring his words or acting drunk. An employee offered to give Jack money to get home, but Jack said he had plenty of cash, which was strange considering he just said that he had been robbed of everything. Jack was next seen on camera walking through another hallway and exiting onto a parking level. He left the garage at approximately 7.05 p.m., it's unclear where he went after that or where he stayed for the night. At 8 o'clock the next morning, Jack was seen at a subway in Wilmington. At this point, it's December the 30th. Even though it was really cold outside, he did not have a coat on. He was dressed in slacks and shoes, but the left sleeve of his white dress shirt was very dirty from the elbow down. 
A subway employee noticed that Jack's eyes were bloodshot and he described him as looking homeless but lucid. Jack ordered a coffee and paid for it with some loose bills that he had in his pocket. Later that afternoon, around 3.30, Jack was seen in downtown Wilmington at the intersection of 10th and Orange Street, which is where the Nemours Building and Hotel DuPont are located. This is also about six blocks from Jack's attorney's office and about a mile from the Amtrak station that he frequently used. Around this time, Jack went to the Small Business Administration office located in the Nemours Building. He spent approximately five minutes in the director's office and asked for a ride to Philadelphia. At one point, he approached another employee and identified himself as a fellow federal employee, but when he was asked about the specific agency he worked for, Jack didn't give an answer and instead just left the office. His wife, Catherine, later mentioned that she was unsure why Jack would have wanted to travel to Philadelphia in the first place, but she suggested that it could have been so that he could ultimately make his way to New York City because, as we said before, they had these plans to meet there to go to this wedding in Boston, and that's the one that Catherine ended up actually going to by herself. At 8.30 p.m. on December 30th, Jack was captured on surveillance footage in the Nemours building again, and this time he was displaying signs of confusion. He asked to speak with a managing partner at a law firm, but he left before anybody could meet with him. During this encounter, he also asked for money for a train fare. At this point, Jack was now also dressed in different clothing. He had a different suit on than the one he was seen in before. And this really was confusing to law enforcement because they didn't have any idea where he could have changed clothes or where these new clothes came from. Right. Additionally, he wore a dark zip-up hooded sweatshirt with the hood raised, which is something Jack's family said they had literally never seen him wear before. Multiple people approached Jack to ask if he needed help or to offer him assistance, but he declined each time. Eventually, Jack left the Nemours building and he proceeded to walk through the Hotel DuPont Valley parking area and was seen continuing walking in a southeast direction. At 8.42 p.m., the last recorded sighting of Jack showed him walking in the direction of the east side, an area that was reported by the News Journal to be a low-income neighborhood with a reputation for crime. The surveillance footage marked the final known visual contact with Jack, and no further sightings of him were reported before his body was found the next morning. During that same day, which again was December 30th, a neighbor who was responsible for watching over the Wheeler residence during the Christmas holiday made a discovery. Several rooms within Jack and Catherine's house were found in a state of disarray, with overturned chairs, a large plant that was tipped over, broken plates in the kitchen sink, and comet cleaner spread across the floor. Jack's U.S. Military Academy sword was also found on the floor. The neighbor also found an unlocked door and an open upstairs window. Since nothing appeared to be missing, the neighbor thought maybe Jack or Catherine had come home and made this mess. They attempted to contact Jack, but they received no response, which was unusual as Jack was known to always answer his phone. Early the next day on December 31st, the neighbor called Catherine since Jack hadn't gotten back with them. Catherine said she was at a wedding in Boston and mentioned that Jack was supposed to be with her, but he never arrived and she hadn't been able to get in touch with him either. 
Little did Catherine know, Jack's body would be discovered hours later in the landfill about 14 miles from the Nemours building. The police searched the Wheeler's Newcastle home due to the possible break-in that Jack mentioned, but they found nothing missing. Valuables such as the TV, the stereo, and Catherine's art collection were all left untouched. They did discover the book, The Long Gray Line, on the kitchen counter. And this is that book that Jack was actually profiled in, and it was open to page 440 and 441, where Jack is described as honoring Thomas J. Hayes IV through a favorite Rudyard Kipling poem, quote, I have made for you a song, and it may be right or wrong. Thomas, here's my best respects to you, end quote. The police also investigated Jack's cell phone and bank records and continued searching for the actual murder scene and the dumpster where Jack's body was found. They explored the possible connection between those smoke bombs at the Marini's home and Jack's murder. It was determined, though, that Jack and Catherine's house was not the crime scene. On January 2nd, 2011, Newark police publicly announced that the body discovered in the landfill was that of Jack Wheeler. However, they did not disclose the details or his cause of death. The News Journal reported that Jack's friends and neighbors were really taken aback by the news of his murder. His attorney, the one who was representing him in the dispute with the Marinis, expressed shock and said that Jack just was not the type of person that you would expect to find under such circumstances. The attorney told the Philadelphia Inquirer that Jack's murder was a profound surprise, and he did not believe it was related to the lawsuit with the neighbors. He emphasized that there was no personal animosity involved in this legal dispute. Another neighbor also expressed their disbelief, describing Jack as a well-educated and sophisticated individual. By January 6th, police had located Jack's car in a hotel parking lot near Wilmington's Amtrak station, and it had been parked there since either December 13th or December 24th. I know those dates are really far apart, but there was two different sources that stated that, so we aren't really sure. But by January 17th, law enforcement still had not disclosed any information regarding Jack's cause of death. And this is where the conspiracy theories really started to come into play. Some speculated that Jack may have been assassinated due to his government role, but there were also doubts about whether Jack had even been murdered at all, and some considered the possibility that he had simply experienced a medical event like a stroke or possibly had stopped taking medication that he was prescribed. These people believed that Jack might have entered a dumpster on his own and then was met with an accidental death inside of a dump truck. The police declined to comment on the status of their investigation, and they would only say that they were actively pursuing leads and conducting interviews. And we have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Today's sponsor, Nutrisense.com, uses a CGM, which is a small device that provides real-time feedback on how your body responds to the foods that you're eating, your exercise, stress, and even your sleep. I'm a real seeing-is-believing type of gal. You can tell me all day long that eating certain foods will make me feel crummy, and still I'll wake up and eat a piece of cake for breakfast. And I'll still manage to say, I don't get why I'm so sluggish this morning. This is weird. 
It's actually not weird. It's science. But with Nutrisense, I can track my glucose trends. And thanks to Jillian, my nutritionist, Nutrisense will use that information to create a personalized plan to help keep me accountable. My goal with Nutrisense is to have more energy, and it's been amazing. And just two weeks in, I'm already making big strides. Nutrisense opened my eyes to what I was really doing to my body without even realizing it. I was flabbergasted when I saw my glucose levels skyrocket after eating a bowl of cereal one night which to me was such a benign nighttime snack. I had no idea I'd see that kind of jump, but it explained why I was feeling so crappy at night. Again, seeing is believing for me, so being able to see the correlation between the two was really eye-opening for me. And with that information, I've changed my nighttime snack to a banana and yogurt, which keeps my glucose levels at a much better level, and now I'm feeling much better as I'm headed off to sleep. Go to Nutrisense.com slash moms and use code moms to save $30 and get one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to tell them you learned about Nutrisense.com from the Moms and Mysteries podcast. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's spooky season, but one thing that doesn't have to be scary is taking charge of your mental health. Thanks to BetterHelp. Mandy, do you ever have something on your to-do list, but your brain is more interested in a to-don't list? On more days than you can imagine. Brains are a weird and wonderful thing, but when your brain feels a little less helpful and a little more like it's on the struggle bus, that can be a great time to turn to therapy. Whether you're having big problems in the here and now or just looking to work through things from the past, BetterHelp counselors are there when you need them. Therapy is something I've done multiple times in my life and something I encourage others to seek when maybe they aren't feeling like themselves or just needing to work through some of life's challenging times. I've found that just being able to say my problems out loud to a therapist can be extremely beneficial. Plus, BetterHelp is therapy entirely online, so you don't have to worry about things like travel time or even encounter the dreaded waiting room magazines. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery, 
delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were looking at the last movements of Jack Wheeler in his final days and uh, learning what police were kind of putting together. And there's a variety of things that could have happened here, one of which was this theory that maybe this dispute with the Marinis had something to do with it, but no one really knew for sure. On January 28th, the Delaware Medical Examiner's Office finally released some answers. They said that Jack had suffered fatal injuries from a beating involving an object or body part, resulting in blunt force trauma. Additionally, it was later revealed that he also experienced a heart attack. The specific locations of Jack's injuries were not disclosed by officials, and any suggestion that drugs were involved was dismissed, with the medical examiner's office only stating that toxicology did not play a role in his death. Authorities remained uncertain about the circumstances surrounding Jack's injuries, or how he ended up in a dumpster, which dumpster he entered, the location of his murder, or the identity of the responsible party. So basically, nothing. They, they really didn't know a whole lot. On January 30th, Jack's family announced a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of his killer. The reward was publicly announced by their attorney, who conveyed the family's profound distress over Jack's death and their desperate need for information. The attorney also unveiled a flyer publicizing the reward, which law enforcement intended to distribute and post throughout the town. The attorney expressed the family's frustration with the limited communication from law enforcement, noting that they had not been informed about Jack's cause of death and had learned about it through the media, just like everyone else. On February 15th, the police returned to the Wheeler's Newcastle home to conduct a search and collect evidence. Whether this search had been prompted by new leads or part of a routine investigation really isn't known. On February 17th, Catherine's first interview after Jack's death was published in Slate. She expressed frustration with law enforcement and described them as being uncooperative and even rude when the family was brought in for questioning after Jack's death. There was confusion as the police initially suggested a heart attack, but the medical examiner later determined blunt force trauma as the cause of death. 
Catherine believed the police were inadequately investigating the case, and Jack's family even offered a $25,000 reward for information, but nobody had responded or called in any tips. The lack of tips made Catherine think that Jack's death wasn't random at all. She also noted that Jack had difficulties with social cues and had a terrible sense of direction, but she denied that he had any mental health issues. She said that Jack wasn't crazy or demented in any way, and she said that, quote, nothing sartorially peculiar about Jack is out of the ordinary. She was basically just saying that he was kind of like a unique and quirky guy, and so like anything right. that you that you might look at him and be like, oh, that's a little weird, like it wasn't weird for him. Like that was just how right. he was. Catherine mentioned her prior experience with a murder case involving her sister. Um, she had actually sadly been through a situation before involving somebody she loved being murdered, and she was emphasizing the long-lasting impact that these types of tragedies can have. In 1995, her sister, Emily Fisher, was murdered in her Memphis home by her son's drug dealer, and finding the killer actually took 10 years. Haley actually researched that case, Emily Fisher's case, for Southern Fried True Crime. If you're interested in that, you can check that out over there. Jack's funeral was held on April 29th. He was interred at the Columbarium in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. At that time, the police investigation had not yet identified a crime scene or a motive, and they even remained uncertain about the specific dumpster where Jack's body had been left. The Newark police were now in charge of the investigation with assistance from the FBI and Wilmington police. In May, Catherine and her son, John P. Wheeler IV, participated in their first major news media interviews with USA Today and the News Journal of Wilmington. During the interview, Catherine spoke about the numerous unanswered questions surrounding Jack's death. She, along with others, pondered whether his career might have been linked to the incident and said she really just wants to know what happened to her husband. Catherine outlined the two prevailing theories regarding Jack's death. They were robbery and a targeted attack. She also disclosed for the first time that Jack had been found with his vintage Rolex watch and gold West Point ring, which seemed to indicate that robbery might not have been a motivating factor. Regarding the assassination theory, Catherine stated, quote, he had lots of enemies, but nobody that would kill him, end quote. Catherine said she had her own theory about the murder, but she opted not to publicly share it to avoid fueling further speculation. Despite not voicing her personal theory, Catherine firmly believed that Jack had been murdered. She recounted her observations when she was taken to view Jack's body. She said she noticed bruising on his face, beneath the mortician's makeup, and swelling in his head. Her limited view of his body from the neck up led her to believe that the fatal injuries were likely inflicted on his torso. Catherine mentioned that Jack was on medication for bipolar disorder, but she couldn't explain his unusual behavior in the days leading to his death. She said that what happened to Jack in the last 48 hours of his life didn't look like Jack. She noted that he had occasional medication lapses due to travel, but he was generally pretty good about adhering to his medication regimen. On the rare occasions that he hadn't had access to his medicine before, he really only experienced irritability. After this interview, though, media coverage of Jack's case dwindled. In December of 2011, an article was published to mark the one-year anniversary of Jack's death. Authorities noted that the investigation had been nearly dormant, with no suspects identified, and the location of the crime scene still remained unknown. 
They said they lacked new information, but they remained hopeful that somebody would come forward and provide valuable leads. After this, media reports about the case pretty much became non-existent. In 2017, the Washington Post released an article about Jack, but this wasn't like other articles that were highlighting his many achievements. This article was about something different, and it actually named Jack as the prime suspect in the attempted arson of the Marini's home involving those smoke bombs, which at this point has happened like years ago. Right. So in response, Catherine, you know, put emphasis on the fact that there were still no answers regarding Jack's fate. And, you know, she announced at this point that she was increasing the reward for information to $50,000. The article explored various theories about Jack's disappearance. Although some didn't believe Jack was murdered at all, Newark authorities said that the autopsy findings strongly indicated that it was a homicide. So regarding the theory that Jack was assaulted after inadvertently entering a dangerous neighborhood, the police pointed out that robbers who rely on physical force typically leave their victims at the scene. Additionally, while the police did not disclose whether Jack still had his wallet, credit cards, or money, they did acknowledge that some items that would typically be taken by a mugger, such as his West Point class ring and his Rolex watch, those were left behind. And as a side note, Back in 2011, it was reported that Jack was identified by his ID, which was still on his body. So that kind of suggests that he like may have had his wallet on him at the time, right. although the police hadn't said one way or the other. Based on these considerations, Catherine believed that Jack had been specifically targeted for murder. She admitted to the Washington Post that her belief was that Jack was experiencing a bipolar episode at the time of his death. She also said that she suspected Jack of being the person who had thrown the smoke bombs into the Marini home. According to Catherine, Jack kept similar smoke bombs on hand for garden pests, and receipts showed that he had purchased black clothing and a full-face ski mask. She recalled that before his death, Jack had actually mentioned a plan to set fire to the Marini home and then walk along the river path and take an indirect route to Wilmington. She was skeptical about his intentions, and she told him she thought this idea was crazy, and she uh, later told the Post that she didn't really think he would do it. She said, especially after that conversation they had, she, if he was going to do it, she thought he didn't want her to know that she was going, that he was planning on doing it. Right. So according to the Washington Post, Catherine raised suspicions of computer hacking being possibly connected to Jack's murder. She explained that in the weeks and months leading up to his death, Jack had expressed an intention to investigate officials and agencies in Delaware, which he believed were corrupt, particularly in relation to the construction of the Marini house. A friend that Jack had made in the hacker community mentioned that Jack had asked him for guidance. The friend noted, quote, I found it a bit unusual, but Jack was exceptionally intelligent, so I provided him with a list of recommended readings, end quote. One of Jack's to-do lists, dated December 5th, contained a reference to hacking a target linked to the construction dispute. Catherine pondered the possibility that Jack may have been caught, either during the arson attempt or while engaging in hacking activities. She said, quote, I think he might have pissed someone off, and I think his movements reflected that. He was trying to stay out of sight because someone might have been following him, end quote. In October of 2020, an episode about Jack's death was featured on the television show Unsolved Mysteries. As of today, though, Jack's murder remains unsolved, 
Anyone with information is encouraged to contact Delaware Crime Stoppers at 1-800-TIP-3333 or visit DelawareCrimestoppers.com. Wow. Okay. So this story, definitely very interesting. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Can't you understand how people would develop conspiracy theories about stories like this? Here's where it starts off for me. Why did they find him, identify him, and wait a few days to tell his family? That, that doesn't I didn't make a really lick of understand. Sense. No, I didn't fully understand what their reasoning was for delaying um, informing the family. Something I, a case that I kept thinking of during this, and even though it's not exactly the same, but I feel like it kind of gives me like a little bit of like the same feeling is the Elisa Lamb case, where and the only oh, yeah. reason is because of like the reports and videos that are showing like unusual behavior leading up to like this person being found in an unusual place, you know, dead. And like, there not being a lot of like solid answers about what happened. And I feel like in cases like that, of course, that always leads to like conspiracy theories and like people wanting to come up with like something that explains what could have happened here. Right, exactly. Because this is very strange. And I feel like the the strange behavior in the days leading up to it is what really makes it a lot more just like intriguing. You want to know uh, what ha- like what really happened in those final hours between, you know, the last time he was seen, you know, at whatever time it was that evening. And then the next morning they found his right. body. So it's like, uh, it's just one of those things, you know, we may never know, but it's like, you do want to know like what happened in that time period where was he, right. who saw him. And especially like, you know, how did he get into a dumpster? All of that. It's like, and, and no one seems to have seen anything or know anything. And there's been footage all along. They've seen him at a million places. So how did he get to this one place? And there's nothing right. showing that or him having contact with someone, but the idea of him, um, going like trying to stay like hiding or whatever i understand that but also it's kind of bizarre to be asking people for money or rides but at the same time if you're trying to stay away and you're just trying to stay low-key i guess that would make more sense so i really don't know it's it's i don't know i know (laughs) and then him having a heart attack you know there's just so many things that almost contradict each other right not that you can't it can't be both and but it is really like I'll think about this a lot because I right. just have no idea. But hopefully, I mean, somebody knows something. Yeah. So there is the uh, Delaware Crime Stoppers, which is a great place to uh, contact if you happen to know anything. Somebody knows something. So we'll have that information in our show notes, of course. All right, Melissa, are you ready to turn the page and do last thing before we go for the week? I am. And Mandy, we're still in love is blind world. So we thought this week, let's let's take it up a level. Let's bring on a true expert in love is blind and reality trash TV. And her name is Laura Norton. Laura of the fall line. Yeah, yeah. Heard of her? Uh, maybe not in this context. But Laura, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to finally <laughs> be invited somewhere to talk about reality television. I've been asking politely, I've been asking sadly, I've been asking impolitely for someone to invite me on to talk about this. And Melissa, as my true friend, you have asked me on. Absolutely. Well, Mandy, I've finally gotten her into Love is Blind, or she kind of did it on her own. But Mandy is into Love is Blind now. So what's better than the three of us just for a minute talking about Love is Blind? Laura, how did you come into Love is Blind? Did you come by it honestly? Did you come in second season? 
did a TikTok get you in? It was second season, and it is because of my extensive work with forensic anthropologists. So forensic anthropologists solve some of the worst crimes um, in the world and spend a lot of time working with skeletal remains and working on death investigation. And you're sitting there with your face getting more and more serious. So what they do in their downtime is watch trashy reality television. And I had not been exposed to any trashy reality television. As you know, from our friendship, you would talk to me and I would be like, what is that show? What is it called? And then if you probably Mm -hmm. remember, suddenly you and I were talking about everything. We were talking about Love is Blind. I was fully caught up on the 90 day verse. And it was because of hanging out with these scientists. That's all they do. So yeah, I wanted to understand what they were talking about. So when I had surgery in December of 2021, I was like laid up. And if you've ever had surgery as a mom, like it's kind of a break. So you're, yeah, you're laying there and you have to watch TV. No one can stop you. So um, I I watched Love is Blind season one and two. I think two was out by then. I watched everything 90 day. And by that point, I was hooked. And now I am fully versed, fully caught up. Conspiracy theories, couples who didn't make it on, like I'm ready to go. Yes. Okay. So let's start with the couples that didn't make it on because of anyone in this three-person group right now, Laura knows the most about the couples, Mandy, that you and I never saw. Laura, who did we see? It was Carter and somebody that you know about. Carter and Renee. Um, they actually didn't make it on the season. And this is the biggest deal. Renee, for folks who may not know, she is the woman in the background of the pods who has gotten kind of the most camera time because she's pretty vivacious. Mm -hmm. She's the vet who does the animal rescue. She's good friends with Taylor, um, who famously is of JP and Taylor who uh, got Mm -hmm. uncomfortable for fair reasons. But she does a lot of uh, kind of fun stuff in the background. Like she did the fake proposal with Taylor to practice, if you remember that scene. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. She's kind of always like just doing fun stuff in the background. So they actually made it all the way to the altar and filed a marriage certificate. Whoa. Yeah. So no one, yeah, no one has ever been cut at that point before. Normally, we know if you watch Love is Blind, people will, you know, get engaged, but get cut before Mexico. That's normal. They can't follow everybody. But they actually made it all the way. So they were in Mexico, and they were actually cut from the scenes in Mexico. But you can see like an arm or a hand or like a cup. We need to go back at, you need the forensic anthropologist to be on this and to give us like a breakdown of exactly, I mean, their time can be better suited doing something else, but I wouldn't mind seeing a real breakdown of all the times her arm is in the background of these shots. Can their time be better suited? I mean, that's my question. I feel like <laughs> they could maybe do this public service, you know, um, but you can see Carter blocked. And I actually just read a theory Um Mandy, I know you like theories. You may like this. The theory was that the Lachey's appeared so little in those episodes in Mexico because they always appear mm-hmm. with the group. And they couldn't show the group because Carter and Renee were there. Oh. Yeah. I'd like to thank Carter and uh, <laughs> Renee um, because I appreciate every second we don't have those two on there. So thank you. It's a service. So, Mandy – Taylor and JP this week, we'll go through these real fast. Taylor and JP, they were a couple. They didn't make it to as far as Renee and Carter, I guess. They're just donezo. I've already forgotten about Renee and Carter. For like half a second, I was like, am I watching the same show that they're watching? Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, you really only see Carter. So all you need to remember about him is he likes to fish. And they had that scene Mm -hmm. where they talked about how much they both liked Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively, if that helps. I do kind of remember yeah. that. 
I think you know more than both of us at this point. I think this so is quite too. Impressive. I know. I, it really is. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've been on Reddit like quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> the one source of truth. <laughs> exactly. So we know JP and Taylor, they're done. Mandy, Lydia, and Milton, do you think they're going to make it? I don't think they're going to make it, but also, I just think that Lydia is like, I don't know. I started off kind of liking her and thinking she had like a really fun little personality, but now I just don't like her that much. And I think she is, I don't know. I don't think she's like really serious about this relationship. I don't know if she would be serious about any relationship though. That's the thing with her. I don't know that she's actually looking for marriage. I think she's too serious about relationships if you think about it. Um, <laughs> what about you, Laura? Um, I think that you're both right. Um, I don't know that she's ready for marriage, but I think she's very serious about any marriage. Um, my bet is that they say yes. Are they going to? You think? Yeah. So? Are they going to be together when we go to you know the reunion? Can't say, but I think they're going to get married. Ooh. Okay. Uh, next, Izzy and Stacy. That I sent Laura. A, I think it might have been a TikTok of Izzy sitting next to Stacy's dad. Mandy, I don't know if I sent this one to you, but Izzy's or Stacy's dad sitting there. His feet touching the ground. Izzy looks like he's in a toddler seat. His legs are this high <laughs> off the ground. <laughs> and I don't know how it happened exactly because it's not like they looked like that much of a size difference, but there was a size difference. <laughs> Maybe he has a long torso. You know, it was unfair. <laughs> yeah. it. I mean, if it was a long torso, it was about four foot because it was just like dangling little feet. It was like putting your toddler somewhere and you know on a couch and taking a cute picture it was all right much. all right no okay. Okay. <laughs> listen we're size shaming it's okay <laughs> so what do you think mandy are they going to make it to the altar yes no i think they will make it to the altar honestly okay. i think they're great for each other i don't know that they're either one of them is like great okay full stop but mm-hmm. i think they're good for each other <laughs> Laura, to you? They're not getting married. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Keep in mind, Mandy, she's all over TikTok. So Laura probably knows something we all don't oh, know. Oh, no, I have no inside info. Um, Just okay. his face when her father was discussing the lifestyle she's accustomed to <sighs> and the fear that was growing in his eyes when she showed him her brass cutlery. I, I don't know what you call that, brutlery, maybe. I heard <laughs> breast cutlery the first two times you said that, and I was like, don't remember that. Sorry, let me, uh, that's my southern accent. Let me, brass, <laughs> brass cutlery. There you go. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, which, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't want to call it brass silverware because I'm sure that's offensive to people that have it. Okay. So the brass cutlery. Sure. And then when she was talking about her two HVACs, I didn't know you could have two. Uh, I think it maybe yeah. is just a little much for him. Um, so I feel like just their style of living is perhaps just a little too incongruent for them to right. say yes. I feel like they're living at two different levels. So Yeah, and I feel like she was definitely making him feel that way as well. So it wasn't just like she was, I don't know, when she was with her family, it seemed even more obvious, I felt. But Laura, as much as we love talking Love is Blind with you and we could do it forever, you really came on uh, not even because you're friends with us, because you have something to hawk. And what is it that we're not hawk? I'm kidding. <laughs> We're, wow, what an we introduction. We kindly, I know. Okay, should I edit it? I'm sorry, I was making a joke. 
Laura has <laughs> written an amazing book that um, I was able to read. And i that's the only book I've read this year, by the way, um, called Lay Them to Rest. And Laura, we'd love to ask you a few questions about it. You can tell us what you want to about it, or you can tell us to shut up, as I mentioned before. I was going to talk about my MLM. But we can talk about my book if you want. Um, Yeah, I would love to talk to you about it. So as part of my work on the fall line, I started working independently with a lot of experts in forensics. Um, And so that would be scientists in law enforcement. And I started out just really simply wanting to understand better the case files I was getting because I was doing a lot of archival research and primary research. And primary research is just going out in the field doing my own interviews when there's no stuff available. And you know this, you want to cover a case, but there's no research out there. So you say, okay, well, I can't cover this case and I want to. So I'm the person that goes out and makes the research exist. So does the interviews, Mm -hmm. find stuff out on the case and creates the documents that allows other people to have that stuff. So when I was out there doing that, I would get really complex medical reports or skeletal analysis, reports on teeth, odontological reports, and say, this is awesome, but I don't know what 30% of this means or 40% of this means. So I started to make friends with scientists um, and very craftily would be like, hey, friend, what does this mean, this mean, this mean, this mean? And they eventually just – I got tired of asking, you know, me asking questions or maybe liked me, combination of the two, and began to teach me things. And I began to work with them on cases and thought to myself, wow, why doesn't the general public have this information about forensic science? Why isn't it accessible? Because I think if we had a better language to understand cases, not only could we be more helpful, but we could understand why some cases get solved, some cases don't. And in terms of the cases I'm most interested in, they're unidentified person's cases. So John and Jane Doe's, they get the least amount of coverage because, and I'm sure you guys know this, they are the hardest cases to cover. There's the least amount of information, right? You know, because what can you find? Like a paragraph. And then there's no backstory there because the family has been forcibly separated from the case. The life story, all the stuff that gives you the details that listeners want to hear about and care about and connect with and share, they're taken away. So my goal was to help develop those stories and help give narrative to those stories so people would feel an emotional connection, even if they didn't know who that person was. So as I began working on those stories and developing those for the fall line, I started working directly with scientists to actually try and solve some of those cases. And when I say that, I really want people to understand I'm a support person. You know, I'm a researcher and writer. I'm not out there, you know, examining the bones myself and doing the testing. But I'm lucky enough to work with those teams. And when this book came about, we had just gotten approval to work on a particular case of a woman who was murdered in late 1992 or early 1993. um, And her remains were found in Ina, Illinois. And she's known as or was known as the Ina Jane Doe. And although her case, her case's forensic art had been circulating for almost 30 years, and it was really well-known forensic art, almost everyone in true crime had seen it, no one had recognized her. So we were pretty sure that the forensic art was inaccurate. And it was not the fault of the artist. I mean, sometimes you just go with what you have, you know, but we figured we need new skeletal analysis We need new art. We need someone with new dental expertise to look at this. We need DNA testing, and we need the kind of DNA testing that you need for 
investigative genetic genealogy, which is SNP DNA testing. And we need to get really right. talented genetic genealogists on this, which in this case is Redgrave Research. Um, they are some of the best in the business. And so all of that came together in this book. And the whole point of the book is to both teach people about forensic science and alternate that with the experience of actually being on a case in real time with the hopes that it will give people both that experience of like the excitement, the stress when you run into roadblocks, also the experience of like what a family goes through, that whole emotional roller coaster, and the education part without it hopefully being dry. I totally agree with that. It's not dry at all. Actually, I found it very easy to read. And as I said, I've read one book this year, so I'm not a big reader in general, but it kept me captivated because you do intertwine what's going on with the case and even what's going on in your life, not like specifics, but I loved hearing like you're looking into research and then your son's asking you a question about Roblox, you know, the next second, because it's very relatable in life in general, right? Like you're you're concentrating on something, you're working on something and you have to almost compartmentalize things with your kids. Um, and it was just, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed that part of it not just being a fact, 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 and just hearing real life, like going through it and and all the highs and the lows of the case and the roadblocks, as you were saying, you hit. So I thought you you nailed that. Sorry, I was just thinking roadblocks and roadblocks. Yeah, there's both. Oh, whoops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was, there was a lot of both that interrupted me, like literally and figuratively. Right. <laughs> See, that should have been your tagline, roadblocks and roadblocks. Yeah. And you could have made a million dollars. So Laura, when did you, was there actually a moment when you kind of went from just having an interest in true crime to really researching and actually trying to connect victims, you know, to their identities and to their stories? Yeah, I mean, so my sort of interest in true crime was early in life. I was always bothered by cases that were cold and unsolved. And when I say bothered, like, I had this weird itch, this feeling that there was like one puzzle piece missing. And if that piece clicked into place, everything would be solved. Can you find this missing piece? Everything will be okay. And as I got older, I realized that life isn't simple like that. And even if the puzzle piece clicks into place, it's maybe over for some people. It's over for the investigators. It's over for people who worked on the case. It's not over for families. You know what I mean? There's right. always unanswered questions. That's a maturity thing. And I think as soon as you start actually working on these things and seeing – I know you guys know this firsthand from working on a nonprofit and working directly with families – but once you actually really get in there and you see how these experiences never end for the people who are involved in them, it became really clear to me that getting involved and trying to help is a process that's ongoing. It never really stops. You know what I mean? My interest in trying to do what I can to help in the cases of the unidentified is simply that those are the cases that are the most underfunded in general. We do see those headlines all the time because, you know, DNA testing is amazing. But there are just so many cases and some of them can't be solved by DNA. And some of them don't even have remains available. Like I'm working right now on four mm -hmm. cases where there are literally no remains. So all that's left is what is in the file. And so what can be done? 
you know, and there's a responsibility you feel there to say, okay, if I have some small skill set, like what can I do to help? So I think that's what happened. That's where that shift came, you know, from viewing things as a mystery where if you can just find that piece, you can solve it to the responsibility to want to lend the skills that you have to just try and help because there's just this huge never-ending pile of things and they need so much help. This is an important question, Uh, Laura. uh, You said that having Trash TV on in the background is very helpful in the book. Uh, You also mentioned a text thread between yourself and uh, Dr. Amy Michael in which one of you texts the other, do you follow Darcy on IG? And of course you mean Darcy of Darcy and Stacey Silva fame. And I'm just wondering who sent who that text? Um, I believe that was me sending it to her. I'd have to go back and look because she was the one who got me involved in 90 Day because she and her friends talked about 90 Day so much that I felt left out. Um, She got me involved. And I do want to just mention here briefly for other listeners who may listen to Murder, She Told, Kristen Seavey, I've now involved her. She's been watching nonstop. She's finished Mm -hmm. before the 90 days. So now she is in the middle of working on really important cases and texts me late night desperate questions trying to understand these people. I actually have gotten a few dings from readers who don't understand why I'm watching this trashy stuff. And I don't know if I can explain to people why you sometimes need that when you're working on just the grimmest things imaginable. You know what I mean? Right. You need to see someone just behaving ridiculously. Like, I don't want to watch Love After Lockup. That kind of stuff depresses me. But I I just need Darcy to throw, throw a basketball or a football. And cheer for her twin flame and yeah. all of that. Yeah, it's perfect. I haven't been able to pressure Mandy enough, but she has her toes into Love is Blind. So I think there's still hope well, for her. Give her, give her time. Don't, don't push her. You know? Just okay. let, yeah, just let her... So what is next then, Laura, for the case in your book? What is um, How can people get involved and what really are the next steps in the case? So, of course, the biggest and most important thing that happened in this case was that Ina Jane Doe was identified. And, you know, that, that was huge. She was identified as Susan yeah. Lund. And I spent the last part of the book working with her family. And we have continued to work together since then. Um, And what happened after the book was published was that Dr. Amy Michael, who's my working partner, and let me add, by the way, that Susan Lund was identified by Redgrave Research, and they identified her in, I don't think I'm spoiling the book here, and if I am, I don't really care. There's so much more in there that they can find out, but I I just want to note here that they identified her in under eight hours once they had the DNA. Wild. And Discord was involved. Well, I mean, Discord wasn't involved in the solving, but they I know, use like, it. Yeah, to communicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a fun little thing that I was like, wow, all this tech. That's how old I am. Discord is tech to me. They communicate on so many levels at once when they're solving something. Like mm-hmm. I like had to close my eyes and like take out one earbud and stuff because I was just too old and tired <laughs> to follow it. Um, like it's, It became real clear who were the smart people in the room to me at that point. And like, I'm not a slouch, but it wasn't me, you know? <laughs> so, um, but Redgrave Research solved the case once they had all the information they needed in under eight hours. They had identified Amazing. her. And then once her family got that information, that's when my work came in again. And I began working with them a lot to build the background information on Sue. So 
what we're doing right now is trying to solve her homicide because her case isn't over. Like I said, you know, right. when, once someone's resolved, a lot of people, their job is over because it needs to be over. That's their job. Right. But Amy, Michael, and I, the anthropologist I work with, are offering a $10,000 reward in her case. It never expires. So what we're hoping people will do now is share information on her case. So we've made flyers. Um, they're posted all over my social media. But what is really the biggest and most exciting thing that's happening is that Crystal, Sue's daughter, was just awarded a family grant from Season of Justice. I know your listeners are familiar. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And our listeners are very familiar as well. And they're going to be running a really big campaign in the city where Sue disappeared. And it's starting in October. And we're really hopeful that's going to bring in tips that could help in our case. But we're just going to be really pushing that all through October, hoping people will share on TikTok. If your listeners have TikTok accounts, if they need any of those materials from me, they can contact me anytime. I'll share them. But we're just really hoping to get that info out because especially folks in the Tennessee area, you can be really helpful in helping spread the word on this. That's amazing. Um, Mandy, do you want to ask her one more? And then I have one last question. Okay, Laura, what's it like to be the tallest person in most rooms? Well, it can feel strange until Melissa comes in. Okay, too far. <laughs> too far, but that was that was a solid answer. I'll give it She's, to you. She's, you know, with her being about, what, three-fourths of an inch taller than me? Okay, we didn't yeah. have to go that far. That wasn't yep. important. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just over here not understanding tall person jokes. <laughs> it's, you know, I just, I, I think it was finally proven when her head was fully cut off in a picture and you could still see my chin. So hurtful. Yeah, so hurtful. you could still see yeah. my chin that we, we finally proved once and for all who was tallest. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to forget that, but thanks so much for bringing it back up. The last thing I wanted to ask before you tell us where we can get your book and all of that is uh, please let our listeners know, and you have told me that you would share this when and whenever. We get them wrong and we get emails. <laughs> Laura, tell the people you know this. I'm not even going to give the grammatical lesson on when and whenever, because I've given it to you privately several times. What I'm actually going to do instead... Thank you, Mom. Thank you for not embarrassing us like that in front of everyone. (laughs) What I'm actually going to do instead is I'm going to give you free reign to use them as you please. And here's why I'm going to do that. I feel like I have the authority to do so. Here's why, listeners. (laughs) I was an English professor for 15 years. And yes, my degrees are in creative writing, but I graded a lot of papers. And there's something called the common vernacular, and there's something called regional speech. And something you may be aware of is that using whenever as a casual statement, when people might say when, is a Floridian thing. It's specifically regional to Florida. In the same way that in the South, we say y'all, you know, there's certain you know, we say chest of drawers in the South, right, for mm-hmm. a bureau instead of chest of drawers. But whenever is very Floridian. There's a few other places that say it, but it's simply, it's, it's Florida vernacular. So it's just part of your common speech. So you know the word when, and you know the word whenever. When you're writing a paper, I doubt you randomly write whenever. It's part of your common speech. You're allowed to say it. I mean, that's all we needed. That's you guys be the heard video it. We make. <laughs> you yeah, heard it <laughs> here. 
honestly, let's just end the show. Don't promote your book. We're done. No. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's, it's, it's regional dialect. It's just like people uh, in the Midwest saying, you know, like, oh, or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just oh, yeah. it's, it's just regional dialect. People in Florida say whenever. There's a few other places that do, but it's very, very – it's just Floridian. Thank you. And we really can't get rid of the Florida stench off of us. So it was never going to change. So I just needed to have that confirmation. But Laura, please tell people where they can get your book. So you can buy my book anywhere books are sold. And that's like literally anywhere. Uh, I mean, don't like walk up to a random Target and hope it's well stocked. It might be. But currently, um, it's available for pre-order. And if you pre-order, they have all kinds of fancy stuff set up for you because, you know, publishers like pre-orders. If you go to the Hachette website, and that's uh, Hachette Books, it will be linked in the show notes because it's spelled like it looks like Hatchet, but it's Hachette because it's fancy. Yep. I thought it was a Southern thing when you said that. I was like, I missed it. No, no, Hachette. Yeah. I had to learn how to say it correctly because it would be real embarrassing if I didn't, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But they uh, have a 20% off code if you order directly from them. And the code is just lay them to rest and you get 20% off. But also, if you order from anywhere, even if you have pre-ordered like in February because you're a true friend, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page for my book from their direct link, which will be in your show notes, there's a form where you can get two different uh, pre-order bonuses, right? And even if you've just ordered one copy, they just updated this. They had some more complex system, and I think they were like, this is too complex. Right. So the two pre-order bonuses are one is a really sort of in-depth podcast episode on the Dardine family. I found out about them when I was up there because they had a huge amount of files up on the wall when I was there. And when I looked into them, I was really concerned about that story because their case had been investigated really well until a serial killer named Tommy Lim Sells confessed to their murder. And it really, you know, looked like he had done it until he recanted and he explained precisely how he had gotten all the information. Uh, their wow. family does not believe that he was responsible. Um, it looks like it really was someone else, but it has not been investigated since then. So I did a really in-depth look at that case. That episode is available if you pre-order and you just put in your info from your receipt. You get that. And there's also a Zoom hangout with me and Josh Hallmark from True Crime BS. Um, he and I are going to be talking about our research methods. If you know anything about Josh Hallmark, he is one of the most intensive researchers on the planet. He is the expert in the United States on Israel Keys. But we're going to be talking about how we use databases to try and identify people. So you get that as well with one purchase. Yeah. You just enter your info and magically you're in. And as long as you order by before midnight on the 17th, you get those pre-orders and the code is good through the 17th. Amazing. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited, and I, I really, our listeners will absolutely love this book. We were talking to people about it at CrimeCon, and people were super into it. Um, so I'm super excited um, for people to get to read it. I know. You guys were doing the work for me. You guys and uh, Kimberly and Katie. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Uh, we have known you for a long time um, since we really started podcasting. So it's always great to catch up with you and see all the wonderful things that you have been up to lately. Thank you so much. All right, guys, that was the story for this week. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.